Hello, and welcome to this edition of Wait a Week Mystery. I'm your host and author, J.C. Bodden. In this week's podcast, I'll be sharing with you another chapter from my novel, Someone to Watch Over Me. If you like what you hear and can't wait a week for the next installment, Someone to Watch Over Me, as well as the other three books in the Devlin O'Quinn series, is available in both Kindle and paperback format from Amazon. You can check out my website, jcbodden.com, for more information and the link to my Amazon page. Now, I won't make you wait any longer. Here we go with episode 139, Someone to Watch Over Me, chapter 39, Back Where I Belong. Police officers milled around in the hallway of the hospital. Travis was working with the nursing staff to coordinate blood donations. Joe sat in a chair in the waiting room, groggy from his pain medication, his arms stitched, taped, and in a sling. Samantha dozed in the chair beside him, an IV of fluids hanging from a stand between them. Mickey paced the floor from the small room to the nurse's station and back. Tilly sat beside Joe, gently rubbing his back. Every now and then the swinging doors behind them opened and everyone would look up expectantly. Suddenly Joe stood, but then had to steady himself against the wall. You okay, baby? Tilly asked as she stood beside him. Yeah, just fine, he snapped sarcastically, but was immediately sorry. He smiled apologetically at his foster mother. I'm going to talk to Travis, he said gently. Hey, Travis said, looking up from his paperwork. You all right? Sign me up, Joe said with a grim nod. For what? To donate, Joe responded impatiently. Travis shook his head. No, sorry. Sign me up, damn it. Listen, man, I know you want to, but you can't. We take blood out of you now. We just have to turn around and put it right back in. Travis stood up and came around the counter, guiding Joe back to where Tilly was sitting. You okay, son? She asked him gently again. No, Mama Tilly, I'm not okay. I've got to do something. I can't just sit here. What could be taking so long? It can't be good, not if it's taking this long. He rubbed the back of his neck and pushed impatiently at his sling. Travis, Tilly said, please ask Papa Mickey to come over here. Travis nodded and stepped over to the nod of police officers and whispered in his foster father's ear. Mickey walked over and put his arm gingerly around Joe's shoulders as he took his wife's hand. Mickey, Tilly said, maybe you could go see if there's any news. You think? He looked at his wife, then at Joe. Okay, yeah. I'll just go and see if anyone can tell us anything. Joe returned to his chair as Mickey turned and walked briskly toward the swinging doors. Just as he put out his hand, the door swung open from the other side. Doctor, he said. Any news? The doctor shook Mickey's hand and angled his head to where Roger and the other cops were gathered. Let's step over here if you don't mind. Together they walked away. Oh, God, Joe said, slumping forward. Samantha sat up and looked at Tilly and Travis, then at Joe, her eyes brimming with tears. Tilly leaned over to look at her foster son in the face. I'll go find out, sweetie. Remember, we'll need to be strong for Jenny. She motioned Travis to her seat as she stood and then resolutely walked over to stand by her husband. Joe sat, his good hand holding his forehead, staring at the floor. He kept replaying the shooting in the boathouse in his mind torturing himself with all the ways to get to Wagner before he fired. But this was not something he could fix. His thoughts were interrupted by the two running shoes stepping into his line of sight. He looked up to see Jenny standing in front of him. She knelt down and took his face in her hands. He tried to read the look in her eyes, but he couldn't see past her tears. Oh, no. God, no. He moaned. He closed his eyes and covered his face with his hand. 
Jen, Jen, I'm so sorry. I love you so much. I'm so sorry. I tried to stop it, but I was too late. Joe, she said, but his eyes were still closed. She tugged his hand from in front of his face. Joe, look at me. He opened his eyes and saw that she was smiling through her tears. It's okay, Joe. He's okay. He had to have surgery, and he's lost a lot of blood, but the doctors say he's going to make it. She smiled again, the tears finally spilling down her cheeks. Joe sat up straighter and gripped her hands. What? It's okay, Joe. He's okay. She laughed and made the sign with her fingers. Okay. It's over, and he's okay. Joe ran his fingers through his hair and grinned at Jenny. Jenny stood and pulled him gently to stand in front of her. She frowned slightly as she carefully adjusted the sling on his arm. Then she took a step back, holding his hands and his eyes with hers. Oh, yeah. By the way, I love you, too, she grinned. We had kissed before, first sweetly as friends, then romantically and passionately as new lovers. But this was different. Sweet, romantic, passionate. This kiss was all that, to be sure. But this kiss was more. Consuming, transforming, complete. In a breathtaking moment of clarity, I knew what this kiss meant. It wasn't just that we were bound together by the events of the past few days, few hours. This kiss knit our future, our lives, our souls together as well. No doubt, no hesitation, no turning back. This kiss was the kiss that sealed the deal. Well, there you have it. The conclusion of my first novel, Someone to Watch Over Me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Next week, I plan on starting y'all on another mystery, this one featuring more closely Jenny's father, Devlin O'Quinn. But I thought I might tell you a little of the background of this story that we just heard. My husband likes to tell people that it took me 25 years to write this story, and that's not exactly true, but it's not exactly untrue either. You see, back in the day, I was a resident advisor for two years in an all-freshman women's dorm, Auburn Hall at Auburn University. The dorm itself was much like I described and is, in fact, still there, although the university sold it to a private corporation after my senior year, due in large part to the fact that it was off-campus and in fairly urgent need of repairs. Like a lot of older buildings on college campuses, this one had an urban myth surrounding it, Namely, that a university maintenance worker had made a nest in the attic and drilled holes into the ceilings above the showers and dorm rooms so that he could watch the residents. Fairly nasty. Yes, well, this supposedly occurred years before I lived there, and yet the seeds, so to speak, were sown, at least for me. Some of the other incidents in the story actually did occur while I was there, notably items stolen from some of the residents, the water heaters not functioning, and the fire chief fussing at us in the middle of the night because someone set off a false alarm. But of course, the major bits of the story, Amy Patterson's attack and murder and the stalking and eventual kidnapping of our heroine did in fact not occur. Additionally, those of you that know me may also see a few other similarities between my real life and some of the characters in the book. But it is, after all, is said and done, a work of fiction, and while certain people may look or act like someone you or I know, this is mostly coincidence. I think it's a little bit like cooking, maybe, or sewing a crazy quilt, this writing stuff. You look around, see what you have on hand, mix it together, and if you're reasonably lucky or fairly skilled, you end up with a palatable combination of patterns and textures. 
I'll leave it up to you to decide which luck or skill applies in this case. Speaking of a palatable combination, I have to mention one of my all-time personal favorite characters, Joe Halliday. When I first started writing the story, he was the bad guy, just like the myth. The problem was, the more I got to know him, the more obvious it became that he wasn't the bad guy. He couldn't be. It simply wasn't in his character, despite his difficult upbringing. Of course, mysteries do need a villain, and this story is no exception. But I hate it when the reader is purposefully deceived. We should have faith in our abilities to judge characters and consider plot. So, there was no way I was using an ending where there was some wild-ass schizophrenic against all reason character twist, or diabolical wake-up-darling-you-were-only-dreaming scene, or, worst of all, the introduction of an oh-yeah-by-the-way-who-the-hell-is-this bad guy. That being the case, my goal from the moment I discovered that Joe was my hero was to nevertheless make you think that A. It couldn't be Joe, and yet B. It had to be Joe. Enter Carrie Wagner. To carry the cooking thing a little further, he's my bay leaf. Adds flavor, but gets discarded. Anyway, while I was working on setting Joe up, I was also playing with your attitudes about Wagner. In this case, though, I wanted you to think that A. It wouldn't be Wagner, and B. It had to be Wagner. I was pretty sure I had nailed it when my husband came to me during his reading of the first draft, after Joe realizes that the only woman he ever loved has just walked back into his life, and declared that I might as well tell him right then if Joe was the bad guy, because if that was the case, he wasn't going to read the rest. I just smiled and told him to trust me. He knows me well enough to know that I would likely write a story I would like, so he finished reading. I have to admit, that was part of the fun of this book. I mean, come on, be honest. Despite all the evidence I threw at you from the very beginning, how many of you refused to believe in your heart of hearts that it was Joe? Okay, so now that you know, come back next week and we'll start on another adventure. <laughs>